0: And tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube, and if by any chance you can help support them, keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. So, for the past month or so, I've been lecturing on topics from the early modern era, things like the gunpowder revolution, the conquest of the Americas, I've previously talked about Columbus and Luther and so on and I expect that I'll continue with some of those topics as we slowly go forward in time but right now I'm going to try to pull back and address a broader and more abstract subject that is difficult to grapple with because it's so broad and multifaceted, but uh, a few weeks ago after I posted my discussion of Douglas Murray's book, The Strange Death of Europe, a listener asked me to discuss, as he put it, ideological histories, or history as an ideological or political weapon, and how history is currently being used as a, a sort of political tool in present-day debates. Now, that's a very worthwhile topic, but for one thing, it's very broad. And even more importantly, the underlying fact is that it would be impossible to draw a clear boundary and delimit current uh, historical uses of history in ideological debate, because really all of history is ideological in some way. Any history that a person writes has to take the available evidence, interpret it, and make a narrative out of it. And that is always going to be framed and guided in some way by one's underlying philosophical assumptions. What are human beings? How do human beings work? How do people make choices? Uh, What should people, how should people live? What should the world look like today? What should it look like in the future? It's impossible to make a narrative about the past that is somehow unaffected and not in any way guided by these underlying ideological assumptions or commitments. And anytime someone puts forward a historical narrative, it always is in some way trying to shape the present. Right? Why would you go through the work? of writing a historical book or article or chronicle or whatever if you don't think that doing that is somehow contributing to shaping the world that you know, if you don't think it's going to have some impact on your audience, right? And people in the field of history generally tend to accept this. And this is why very few historians credit the idea that history is somehow a science, a social science, that it's objective. And people who want to do sort of this pseudoscientific, you know, quantitative history, these kind of Steven Pinker types, are in most cases not historians and have not really grappled with the ways that starkly different ideologies and ways of understanding the world necessarily frame how you go about interpreting and retelling history right now history the word originally just means story right and basically all that distinguishes history as a discipline is that it is narrative it is trying to describe the world and order knowledge through the particular medium of narrative and you can make narratives about anything you know you can make narratives about cosmology you know a brief history of time or uh, you know things like the Big Bang, the formation of the Earth, and so on. But the vast bulk of historical scholarship, of course, is about human affairs. And that's because human affairs are uniquely suited to the narrative form, right? People make choices, they make plans, they take actions based on goals, hopes, aspirations, they form relationships, uh, they live and die and pass on legacies, and so human affairs are in some ways inherently narrative, or at least we, we experience human affairs always in the form of narrative. So history is specially concerned with human affairs in a way that it, it isn't really with, with natural affairs or the subject matter of science, properly speaking. Now, of course, there are some current scholars who would dispute that and say, oh, well, you know, we can write an alternative history uh, that in, you know includes the natural environment and animals and is not delimited to human experience. You know, and that's fine, but I would say, well, good luck. <laughs> let's, let's see you make that work. Certainly, we can see that traditionally in the long sweep of time, Being a historian and producing history means dealing with human affairs. When one makes a narrative, and that's what historians do, is create narratives using evidence in the ways that they choose to do. When you make a narrative, you're always necessarily making ideological choices, right? What do you include in the story? What do you consider to be properly part of the story? What do you consider to be relevant? And what do you leave out, right? People don't walk around saying, uh, I'm going to behave in such and such a way so that it will fit into some future scholar's book. You know, I'm going to only associate with people of my ethnic group or my class so that I will then form an easy unit to stick into a book on this topic. People don't work that way. People have complicated, multifaceted, often unpredictable lives. And when you use them as material for a narrative, you're always retroactively selecting out. You know, I'm going to talk about this person because he was a member of the Knights of Pythias or because he died in a cholera epidemic in India. For whatever reason, there's something relevant about them that makes them part of the narrative I'm trying to tell right? And in this way, history really is continuous with myth. To explain, I'll try to explain what I mean by that. A myth is a story that we tell in order to make sense of the world, right? To, To create order and meaning out of the world in a way that might otherwise seem chaotic, right? And... The most widely told and oldest, most fundamental myths that you'll hear from peoples all over the world generally are creation myths. And these creation myths usually begin with the idea of some primal, primordial being ordering chaos, right? Separating the elements, creating categories, making a universe out of what had been simple disorder, right? And the process of storytelling in a way is just an echo of of the same thing, right? It's the same idea. It's the impulse to make order out of what otherwise seems chaotic, right? Myths, and I, I talked some of, a little bit about myths and how I understand myths in my first lecture about the myth of the Middle Ages, right? And as I said then, myths are not necessarily false, right? That's not really fundamentally what the term means and that's not how scholars use the term a myth is is a story that makes order and it can be true or false right looking at a myth as as a scholar as a historian what you ideally want to do is weigh what is persuasive and what is more or less accurate in a mythic story right and debunking a myth doesn't necessarily just mean putting forward some fact to disprove it. It means examining, it means dissecting how the story works, what sort of meaning it's trying to convey, and what might be accurate or inaccurate about it. And when I talked about the Middle Ages, you know, the, the very concept of the Middle Ages is a myth. It was first formulated by particular people in a particular place and time, 15th century Florence in order to serve a certain ideological purpose in their own lives and it's not necessarily false you know you can't say well there wasn't a period between 500 and 1400 and you can't say that there aren't certain commonalities or threads running through that period of time right the way I chose to define it basically was just the period of time when the Eastern Roman Empire still existed but the Western Roman Empire did not. But, you know, even that you could, you could quibble and say well, you know, Charlemagne was crowned as Roman Emperor so in, in that sense there was a Western Roman Empire during some part of the Middle Ages. But the point is that uh, to say it's a myth is not to say therefore it's a lie. It's to say that it's a particular story that in a simple reproducible way tries to impose order on very complicated events and very complicated lives. History is continuous with myth in the sense that all histories are myths in this broad sense, right? They're ways of trying to make sense of human experience and try to account for and explain the things that people see and live, right? And they're always selective, And they're always to some degree biased and they're always to some degree distorting. No historical book can be absolutely 100% accurate. You know, there is no perfect God's eye view of history. And any interpretation can always be questioned. Now, some people might say, oh, well, then therefore that means you're a relativist. You know, there is no objective truth, everything is just interpretation. Well, Personally, I think that that's a logical leap that I don't subscribe to myself. But this is gets into very fuzzy areas of epistemology, right? You know, <laughs> what, what do you consider to be truth? And, you know, that's a little above my pay grade. I'm not going to really get into that. But to say that all histories and all narratives are interpretive and they always involve some bias and they always involve some distortion, it does not necessarily mean that all narratives are, are equal. You know, it, that does not mean that a person cannot sit down and try to put whatever their biases and their agendas are aside as much as they can and come to a conclusion about what is a stronger, more reliable claim about the past. You know, whatever my ideological disposition might be, I'm confident in saying that the statement John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln is a more accurate statement about the past than Abraham Lincoln shot John Wilkes Booth. You know, and those names of course are arbitrary social labels that we stick on particular concepts, people. The idea of shot, you know, one person shot another is also a socially constructed ideological concept but all of that being said nonetheless within the language that I speak and that I share with my audience I can vouch it is accurate to say John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln right there can still be certain standards agreed upon standards by which you adjudicate what is a stronger or weaker story about the past okay so all of those epistemological statements aside, I'm going to try to talk about the different sorts of stories that people have developed about the past and that they have used and in some sense continue to use today as ideological tools for shaping how other people see the world and respond to the world. Now, this is an enormous, huge, sweeping topic. I don't know how much of it I can really discuss. But I'm going to try to go through different kinds of histories that people have created through time. Necessarily, I'm going, I'm going to butcher a lot of them, right? I can't really do justice to, you know, Weber's <laughs> evolutionary social history and dialectical materialism and really get them all nailed down to the satisfaction of the devotees of each of these schools of thought, but I'm going to try to give a little basic description from the point of view of a historian and in line with what I already said about myths, I'm going to begin from the most basic kinds of histories, which are myths. Okay, all peoples all around the world seem to have myths, right? They have basic stories that they can serve and pass on as a way of explaining the world, right? And and history, whatever the pretensions of academic history, all history really has grown and evolved out of myth-making, right? Now, before I get into discussing the different kinds of myths that people tell, and the different purposes they serve, I'm just going to first describe a certain story that a lot of you have surely already heard, especially if you're an American. And that is the story of the first Thanksgiving. So if you grew up in the United States, or maybe even if you didn't, it's very likely that at some point you heard this basic story. In 1620, the pilgrims from England landed at Plymouth Rock. They then founded a colony, which they called Plymouth. And a friendly Indian named Squanto befriended them, taught them how to plant and grow crops and hunt and fish in this new land. This enabled them a year later to harvest their first successful crop, And in order to celebrate this successful harvest and their survival in this new country, they held a feast of Thanksgiving. And the pilgrim colonists and the Indians feasted and celebrated together and specifically ate certain foods like turkey and pumpkin pie. And this was the beginning of successful English colonization. In America this story is a myth it's not a myth necessarily because it's false that's not really the point in the same way that we can't exactly say that the myth of the Middle Ages is false but it's a constructed story that conveys certain messages and it does it by emphasizing certain aspects of what happened and suppressing or leaving out others. So there is in a sense a lot more to the story than what we hear when we are introduced to the story of Thanksgiving in second grade. What are some other events or circumstances that made it possible for this first Thanksgiving to happen? Well, As some historians have pointed out, when we're told the story of Thanksgiving, we almost never ask, who was this Squanto? Why was he able to communicate with these pilgrims so readily? The fact is, he spoke English. Why did this man already speak English when these pilgrims showed up at Plymouth Rock? Well, this man, whose actual name was something more like Tusquantum, was a Wampanoag. Right, so he belonged to the main, largest uh, Indian nation in that region, in what's now Massachusetts. And Tisquantum grew up in a small coastal village called Patuxet. Around probably 1614, an English adventurer named Hunt raided the coast of Massachusetts, including Patuxet, and took... 19 men prisoner and took them back basically as loot back to Europe and tried to sell them as slaves in Spain. There were complicated laws and policies in Spain about slavery and the church in Spain apparently disapproved of selling captives who had been kidnapped uh, as slaves rather than having bought them as prisoners of war or debt prisoners and so on. So Hunt was not successfully able to sell these men as slaves and apparently they went into some sort of state of servitude or partial freedom. Tusquantum was able to leave Spain and get to England where he spent several years probably as a low-level laborer or sailor. He learned English and he eventually was able to persuade a European adventurer to leave him off in America close to Patuxet where he had come from he was able to make it back to his home country and he found that his home village of Patuxet was gone what had happened is that in the intervening years when he'd been in Europe another European expedition some French privateers had been shipwrecked and landed in Cape Cod. And inadvertently they touched off a massive hepatitis epidemic. They brought a particularly virulent strain of hepatitis, which touched off a cascading wave of devastating epidemics through the coastal areas of New England. It eventually struck Patuxet, killed most of the people, And if there were any survivors, they were forced to simply abandon the depopulated village site and go join communities somewhere else. So by the time Tusquantum got back home, there was no home left. And apparently he lingered around the area, survived one way or another until these pilgrims showed up. And perhaps he was helpful and friendly towards them because there was no one else. The pilgrims built their colony what we now know as Plymouth on the cleared land and basically ruined foundations of Patuxet and this hepatitis epidemic that I just described was part of a larger pattern of deadly epidemics breaking out and destroying much of the population all over the eastern seaboard of North America in the 15 and 1600s once Plymouth had been established they went through a terrible starving winter, something that is sometimes referred to in history books, but is not often emphasized. They were totally unprepared in creating food supplies, uh, enduring the cold and so on. They lost about half their population to disease and malnutrition. And by the later months of 1621, they had dwindled down to probably no more than 50 people surviving. So the fact that they managed to make a harvest in 1621 was truly impressive. Part of why they were able to survive is that they made a treaty of cooperation with the Wampanoag nation. You know, Tusquantum acted as an interpreter and ambassador and enabled these two groups to make an agreement where basically the Wampanoag would allow this tiny English group to live in their small fortified outpost at Plymouth would not obliterate them if the English would be peaceful, would respect the suzerainty of the Wampanoag, would not attack them or take any of them captive, and if need be, the two groups would protect each other as allies in war in case any of them came under attack, right? So it was out of, you know, strategic thinking and forbearance that the Wampanoag basically allowed this small colony to exist. Although they continued to see them as as a potential problem, right? A new unknown foreign group coming into their territory. And they did their best to manage this new presence and this new possible danger in their borders. When the pilgrims decided to hold a feast of thanksgiving and celebrate their successful harvest, they did several things. One is they sent out a small hunting party to hunt wild game, particularly fowl, and they shot off guns and cannon to celebrate, Okay, something Europeans have done for a very long time, right? When, when When you're happy, you're having a party, you fire off your guns. The gunfire evidently attracted the attention of nearby Wampanoag communities who were concerned about what these English people were up to and whether they were trying to start raiding and kidnapping, as Europeans had done many times over the years. So they sent a powerful war party by the standards of that time. They sent 90 armed men, led by the chieftain Massasoit, to go to Plymouth and inspect what was going on and what this gunfire was about. When they got there, the English explained, well, we're just having a celebration. The Wampanoag, not surprisingly, were skeptical and decided to set up a camp nearby and position their 90 men, who of course in and of themselves outnumbered the entire Plymouth colony, to set up camp nearby and keep an eye on what these English people were doing. And while they did so, they apparently gathered their own food, did their own hunting, and at some point probably shared some of this food in some way with the English. Okay. And this is the event that now has been passed down in American popular thought and American sort of cheap, uh, you know, pop history as the first Thanksgiving. So, what are some aspects of these facts that that maybe go against the traditional story. It doesn't seem that the Indians were invited, okay? That's something that we impute to these events that didn't, probably didn't actually happen. Rather, the, the Indians were there as a kind of watching and managing presence, trying to, you know, keep an eye on this possible uh, threat. They were a war party of men, Okay, when you look at depictions, you know, Victorian paintings of the first Thanksgiving, you always see men and women together looking very happy and friendly and eating together. And this is significant because women usually serve as symbols of the community, right? The national symbols, you know, Britannia, things like this are are usually female figures representing a group. So Presenting the first Thanksgiving as this big happy party involving men and women from both sides implies a, a sort of partnership, uh, even a, a kind of marriage, which is not apparently accurate really to the relationship of alliance but also mutual caution and suspicion that really existed. The English, for their part, didn't really want them to be there but also had to manage this possibly friendly but possibly dangerous presence and the first thanksgiving insofar as it happened at all it didn't really signal the beginning of a long-term friendly relationship it is true that there was about another decade of peaceful coexistence and often trade between the english colonists and the wampanoag but this was drastically interrupted after the beginning of the great migration where thousands upon thousands of Puritan colonists from England poured into the region just to the north, created the much larger Massachusetts Bay Colony, and began encroaching upon Indian territory and upon the supplies of animals that the Indians were used to depending on. This escalating conflict and power struggle eventually erupted in the massively brutal King Philip's War of 1675 to 76, in which the Wampanoag and their allies tried to basically expel this uncontrollably growing English colony on their coast. So simply by telling the first Thanksgiving story and leaving out what happened after 1621, we're of course presenting a kind of sanitized picture. Uh, You know, that much should be obvious. But there's more to it even than that. Why do we tell the first Thanksgiving story? Well, it, it, it's, it's a classic myth in all sorts of ways. For one, it's a story that is continually reenacted, right? It's used as the basis for this American national holiday of Thanksgiving that millions of people continually recreate and repeat over and over again every year. And people even customarily cook and eat the same foods that supposedly were eaten at this first Thanksgiving, although that's, you know, very doubtful exactly what foods really were, were eaten. But the point is, we weave this story over and over again into our own lives, right? We imaginatively sort of model ourselves on these pilgrims that we then cast not only as our forebears in the sense that they might be our ancestors or they might have created a society that we're part of, but even more than that, that we act out their lives over again or imagine that we're acting out their lives over again, right? And in this way, myths are not just, they don't just take place in the past. They take place in an eternally recurring present, right? The past and the present collapse together into one eternally recurring story. This myth serves as the explanation of the origins of a group. There's no evidence that through the 1600s and most of the 1700s, most American colonists observed Thanksgiving. Certainly not, you know, they didn't observe this feast holiday every November like we do now. Okay, It was maybe commemorated occasionally and sporadically, and they didn't relate it directly to this first 1621 event. Right? That all came later. It came later in the 19th century when a certain letter by a Plymouth colonist named Edward Winslow was found and published, I believe for the first time in 1841. And in this letter that Edward Winslow wrote to a relation in England, he described this Thanksgiving feast in, in the following words. He said, our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, so that we might after a special manner rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labor. They four in one day killed as much fowl as, with a little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which we brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. So you might notice in this little letter, he just very vaguely says, the Indians came among us, glosses over what was going on, why they showed up, right? And he presents the most positive, friendly, prosperous picture he possibly can of this fledgling colony, and he makes it pretty clear why he's doing that, because this letter was a piece of propaganda, right? It was something the colonists were sending back to England in order to appeal To other English people and encourage more people to come over and populate the colony, right? So, this little description, this little version of events, it's one of the few primary sources we have that even talk about this feast in 1621. But already from the very first, it was a certain piece of propaganda trying to put across a certain message. When it was republished in the 19th century, it was taken up again and used for a slightly different purpose it was used to try to solidify a certain national identity Americans all share this single origin right we all come from that small you know tough hard-working band of good Protestants good English-speaking Protestants who settled in New England and established this wonderful friendly relationship with the Indians right it serves to gloss over the conflict and the violence and simply the, you know, death on both sides that surrounded the whole Plymouth affair. And Thanksgiving was still only occasionally celebrated in certain areas. It became a national holiday in 1863, and it was proclaimed a national holiday by President Abraham Lincoln in 1863 intentionally as a way of forging a sense of national unity and national identity in the face of the Civil War. Now, I'll even point out further, there are specific aspects of the myth, as we live it and repeat it today, that are important. We live it and repeat it by eating particular foods, Americans eat such and such foods on Thanksgiving and we do it because these progenitors, these forebears ate these foods in 1621 in the first Thanksgiving. That is important. Why? Because people tend to feel on an intuitive level that you are what you eat, that the foods that you eat somehow make you into a particular kind of being. There's a really remarkable psychology experiment that was done in 1990, I believe, at University of Pennsylvania. And in this experiment, a a psychology professor gave his students descriptions of a certain fictitious tribe, which he called the Chandorans. And the packet of information included stories, you know, anthropological observations, biological observations, and then he asked the students to describe, to choose adjectives that would describe this tribe of people half of the students got a version of the packet that said that the Chandorans hunted wild boar for food and hunted sea turtles for their shells. The other half got the reverse information. The Chandorans eat sea turtles and hunt wild boar for their tusks And these two groups described the Chandorans in radically different terms. Uh, The the first group tended to describe them as uh, tough, wild, fast-moving, you know, like the boars that they eat. The other group described them as good swimmers, like the turtles, okay? And these, of course, were, you know, modern-day Americans, but they seemed to fall into the same habit of mind, different peoples all over the world show, which is the notion that the foods that you eat define who you are and define your essence in some way, that you take on the traits of the things that you eat. And as a corollary of that, when groups of people eat the same foods, they take on similar traits, characters, personalities, essences, okay? The ritual of eating certain foods that you trace back to the founders of your group is a way of enacting your commonality, your similarity. And the myth of Thanksgiving marks, in a sense, the creation of a new group that had not existed before, right? English people were transplanted out of England into a new land where they had never been before. And they had to learn what foods to eat, right? And they changed their diet. And if you look particularly at pumpkins, which are this almost universal symbol of Thanksgiving now, pumpkins are a new world plant and a new world food. And by eating them, these English people became a new kind, a new species that hadn't existed before. They were in some way transmuted into a new people, right? And this supplies us with an easy-to-tell, easy-to-represent myth, about how Americans came about okay so now again if we look at the sources we have the story of Thanksgiving that we're told is not totally false it doesn't at least according to the evidence we have it doesn't seem to be all false but it's not all true it picks out particular items like eating particular foods and leaves other things out and it serves the ideological need of establishing group creation, group identity. We don't talk about the massive die-off and the the devastating epidemics that effectively paved the way for the creation of Plymouth and New England colonies more generally. Yet it was part of this massive wave of epidemics in the 15 and 1600s that arguably was the most important, most consequential event in the entire history of North America since human beings first migrated over the Bering Land Bridge. We don't talk about that. Instead, we present this myth of the first Thanksgiving in order to both imply that there was some sort of civilizational superiority, that the, the pilgrims were somehow more hardworking, had better habits, better beliefs, that made it possible for them to move in and take over. And it also fits into a providential history. And I'll talk about providential history a little later. But the, the notion that this was all part of God's unfolding plan, it was all destined, right? And so, you know, it was not the result of random contingency or accident. Today, we don't talk about those epidemics either. Almost, you know, regardless of what your ideological disposition is, the epidemics don't come into our story of American history. On the one hand, it doesn't serve the national story, right, in, in these ways that I've said. It also doesn't really serve the, the counter-narrative that we sometimes hear today, which is that Europeans are oppressors and they victimize people in other lands. And that's why you have these nations like the United States. It's because of violence and conquest and, and oppression, well you know certainly there was violence and conquest and oppression there's no question about that but those things didn't have nearly the kind of demographic effect that simple diseases like hepatitis did and the fact that the village of patuxet and so many other villages were just completely wiped off the map by epidemic diseases that nobody intended to spread that nobody expected or even understood how they were communicated The fact that that made colonization possible doesn't really fit either narrative, right? It doesn't fit the customary national myth. It doesn't really fit the liberal anti-narrative either. And so this enormously consequential aspect of history ends up falling through the cracks. So in all of these ways, the myth of the first Thanksgiving, as I'm trying to say, is a great encapsulation of how myths work and how they can develop and take on new roles and new purposes through time. And as I said, all narratives about the past are in some way mythic, right? They are continuous with myth. So if we want to examine systematically how do historical stories work ideologically, we should go back and consider the different sorts of myths that people tell and how they work and what sort of ends they conserve and in order to do that we have to start with pre-academic myths, myths from before the invention of writing. These sort of pre-literary myths that were composed and passed on orally fall into two basic categories The first is creation of the world, or cosmogony, as theologians and anthropologists call it. Where did the world come from? And these myths often involve some sort of original being, deity, a giant, a creature of some sort, intervening in the sort of primordial chaos and separating out categories. Right, creating order, separating the earth from the heavens, the land from the sea. Probably most of you have heard of the basic biblical story in Genesis. Uh, God creates or separates the heavens and the earth, the light and the dark, the land and the sea. There are other similar stories. The ancient Babylonian myths describe the primordial gods battling the sort of demons or monsters of chaos and creating order. In ancient Chinese myth, describes the original primal cosmic man hatching out of a cosmic egg, and the top part of the egg became the heavens, the bottom part became the earth, and then the parts of the man's body became the features of the earth, like the mountains and valleys and so on. So these sorts of stories are very common all over the world. They have certain patterns, and a lot of them tend to involve a flood, a flood either at the original moment of creation or shortly after. Uh, and there's, for example, a Native American myth that describes the original man, the sort of the, just simply called old man, sending creatures like otters and, and ducks to dive down into the sort of primal deep, uh, the, the, the murky waters and bring up mud and muck from the bottom to make the land out of. Right? So there's this sort of recurring notion of a sort of mysterious, dark, primal chaos that somehow had to be contended with or, or reshaped or broken in some way to make the more ordered world that we see around us now. The prevalence of the flood, you know, it could just be psychological, but also it might have a basis in real events, in the enormous floods that resulted from the end of the last ice age, right? Huge floods of glacial meltwater in North America and Europe, and also the rapidly rising seas, which probably caused very fast, dramatic floods of ocean water into lands where it hadn't previously been uh, into the Mediterranean the black sea the persian gulf and large areas of southeast asia and australia were all you know flooded around 10 to 11000 years ago so there may be a sort of uh, you know orally transmitted memory of those events in these beliefs in in a great flood but regardless the other important category of myths that I would point out is myths of group origins, right? Practically every social group has some sort of mythic story of where it came from and what distinguishes it. Uh, And these myths can be about humankind in general, Right? so the, there's often stories of the creation of a first couple uh, you, know, you see this again in the Hebrew Bible also in uh, Japanese creation myths there's an idea of a first male and female that gave rise to humankind there also are many deeply held myths of the creation and origins of distinct social groups right? that try to answer why are there different groups of people why are they distinct? And particularly, why do they speak different languages? Right? This is strange and often confusing, difficult element of human life that people have developed myths to account for. I'm sure you've heard of the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis. You know, humans were building a tower that was too big, so God confused their tongues in order to halt their work right? And hence you have this divided humankind. Uh, There's a somewhat different uh, Blackfeet nation creation myth, uh, you know, told by the, the Blackfeet Native American nation, which holds that the original sort of primal man, the old man, a sort of giant figure, brought together different people around himself early on in human life. And he gave to them cups of water, and each person who received a cup of water became the leader of a certain group and the cups of water were of different colors, right? Some were blue, some were pink, and some were black and according to this myth, the, the Blackfoot, the Pegan, and the Blood tribes all received black water and that's why they speak the same language, right? The, the different colored waters gave rise to different languages Right. so again this uh, it sort of harkens back again to this idea that you are what you eat or in this case you are what you drink and that that sort of changes your essence there are other similar stories about the creation of social classes Okay, there's an ancient Japanese myth that holds that a particular goddess was lonely she saw her reflection she wanted other creatures like herself so she fashioned figures out of mud and brought them to life and they became the nobles, but then she tired of this laborious process so then she simply took a mud-colored cord and swung it around and the droplets of mud then became the peasants or the commoners, right? So, in a sense, the message, the idea encapsulated in this myth is that peasants and, and commoners and aristocrats might be all of the same basic substance, but they were fashioned by a different process, right? And that's why you see them as essentially different classes of, of beings. Uh, there's a sort of somewhat similar story in the ancient Hindu Vedas, which holds that there was a sort of original cosmic man, again, the sort of primal uh, cosmic man. And when he died, his body parts became humans and the head became the brahmins or the priestly class, the arms became the kshatriya or the warrior class, the torso became the vaishya or the artisanal and mercantile class, and the legs became the shudras or the laboring class. So all the various different castes in Hindu tradition can all be somehow traced back to the different body parts of this original cosmic man and the message uh, conveyed by this myth is very similar to the philosophy of medieval Europe that I described before that all people are part of some sort of greater body right that they, they all form members literally members of a larger social body and as such they have their different roles to play like the parts of a body. So these are all ways that stories about the past, whether they are literally factual or metaphorical they encapsulate something about lived social experience, the experience of social groups, languages and observed natural experience the existence of the different elements, the different realms of the cosmos, sky, earth, sea, and so on. These sorts of myths were traded and developed over thousands of years. Jungian scholars and sort of scholars of religion and art will sometimes argue that these myths reflect some sort of deep, you know, inborn archetypes. But actually if you gather as much evidence as you can, and I'll probably talk about other cases of this later, if you gather historical evidence, you tend to find that these stories actually have a historical origin in certain places and times, and that they then were spread and passed on by particular people. You know, they don't... They don't spring up independently out of the subconscious mind. Rather, people create them, a lot like the way scholars create history. Someone creates them, and then they are passed on, they are replicated, they are revised, and reused over time. And there actually is currently a graduate student at the University of Paris, Julien de Huy, who is researching ways of tracing myths whose origins lie in in oral literature and oral traditions. And he has collected sort of thousands of cases of mythic stories from different peoples around the world, compared them, traced particular elements, particular events, particular characters that appear in these stories, and then put them into sort of mathematically delineated diagrams that can actually then trace back and reconstruct what earlier versions of these stories must have been and where they came from, right? So there, for example, he's analyzed the cosmic hunter story, okay, which is the idea that there was a hunter at some point in the past who while on the hunt encountered a, a goddess creature of some sort, possibly in human form or an animal form, uh, came upon her unawares, was killed or punished by this goddess in some way, and then subsequently was hung up in the sky in the form of a constellation, right? So in Greek mythology, we see this in the form of Orion, right, The, the hunter who pursued the goddess Artemis, and then after death was hung in the sky as a constellation. You see the same sort of story with the same kind of ending in all sorts of societies all around the world. And this is—it's not because there's something somehow encoded in our DNA that says there's a constellation that's a hunter, but rather it's because this story apparently originated in Eurasia, probably you know more than fifteen thousand years ago. And it gradually spread and was taken up by different groups of people and made it across the Bering Land Bridge into the Americas. So you have indigenous Americans who tell the same sort of story. So for whatever reason, when a story like that develops and it captures something compelling and interesting and memorable and accounts for things like why do the stars look the way they do, these stories can have incredible staying power across millennia and, and across continents. So this sort of myth-making continued up, you know, and really continues to today, of course. But the invention of writing introduced certain new elements and new practices. Early on in civilizations that had writing, like Mesopotamia and Egypt, scribes began chronicling, right? Which is simply recording down in writing basic, important events right on such and such date in such and such year the king died and his successor came to the throne on such and such date in such and such year the king won a big victory over his enemies right and ancient civilizations produced a lot of these chronicles often you know as a form of propaganda you know as a way of heralding the great accomplishments of rulers, you know, and the Merneptah Stella that I talked about in the lecture on Judaism, uh, you know, is just an example of, you know, in, in this year we destroyed our enemies in Libya, and this year we destroyed our enemies in Canaan, and so on. Chronicling is at base it's very simple, right? It's just an event happened that we think is noteworthy. It doesn't involve analysis or causation, right, of why. Why do these things happen, and what sort of meaning should we take from them beyond, uh, look at how great our ruler is? Well, it seems, as far as we can tell, the first person to use the technology of writing to analyze the past, right, not just chronicle events, but question exactly what happened and why was Herodotus, right, was this ancient uh, Greek scholar from the 5th century BC, the Athenian Golden Age, who wrote histories of the wars between Greece and Asian powers, particularly Greece and Persia, right? We, We know almost nothing about Herodotus and who he was or his life, but we can see from his histories that he was concerned to describe what had happened and also wanted to figure out the bigger picture, right? And he looked to the social causes, right? What are the differences in worldview, the differences in ways of life and beliefs that distinguished Persians and Greeks? And how did this fuel and shape this ongoing conflict, right? And even just by asking this question, Herodotus sort of opened up a Pandora's box. He began to obsessively collect any information he could about Persia, about the different cities of Greece, about Egypt. He traveled to many of these foreign lands, wrote about the people he talked to, what they thought, what they knew, what they had heard. And his history is a kind of scholarly analysis, sort of like what we would recognize today. But it also includes all kinds of stories and incidents that clearly can't be literally true, but that are obviously meant as philosophical ruminations on the meaning of life, really. Happiness and good and bad fortune and power and success and failure. So it's not anything like a... it's not a history that would be printed by a modern-day academic press, right? (laughs) Although it's translated and reprinted many times. It's a history that does not, again, does not draw the line between factual account and myth, right? It's a history aiming at some sort of bigger truth, right? And real events and philosophical rumination are not really clearly distinguished. Okay, so Herodotus begins this kind of school, this tradition of Analyzing events and seeking out causes, right? And this is essentially what scholars today tend to say distinguishes history from chronicling, right? You know, as, as one 20th century scholar said, if, if someone writes, the king died and then the queen died, that is not history. But if someone writes, the king died and then the queen died of grief, that is history, right? Because you're positing causation and you're making a story right? And that, as I, as I sort of said before, that is not essentially scientific. You cannot do a controlled experiment and kill a bunch of kings and see how the queens react and, and scientifically prove what caused uh, a certain historical event to happen. Or even, even if you can, that is beyond the scope of history, right? Hist- history is about creating narratives based on your own best philosophical views and assumptions. Okay, so I'm going to try now to run through and describe the sort of basic, most prevalent schools of history, of written histories that have developed through the ages, really since Herodotus. (laughs) You know, this is basically... You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be brutal. It's going to be quick. But this is more or less the field of inquiry that falls under the label of historiography. Right? So if you're a historian and you get academic training as a historian, you're supposed to take classes in historiography where you examine different histories and compare their methodologies right? and compare their modes of interpreting the past the historiography classes that I took in my education were notoriously bad. I mean, the professors I took them with were good. I learned things. I learned things from the other students. But it's sort of a field, you might also call it meta-history, right? The history of different histories. It's a field that's sort of chronically disorganized and confused. You know, historians are not philosophers by profession and so they're not that good at methodically parsing out their own views and others views of history and as a class it's something that nobody really wants to teach right it's not really anybody's field right so historians don't usually want to teach historiography they don't want to talk about all these different books that are way outside their field so it sort of is constantly a kind of unwanted stepchild. So as far as I know, I'm not aware of anyone ever really teaching a very good historiography class. You sort of just get books of different sorts thrown at you with without much rhyme or reason. So I'm gonna I'm sort of flying blind here, basically, in short. But nonetheless, to begin at the beginning, the first sort of prevalent pattern or mindset that you see among scholars of history is basically declensionist right and this is a term historians use sometimes declensionist basically just means describing or dealing with decline right and there's this pattern that people often point out if you look at Plato and his dialogues you can see passages where he complains bitterly about the decline of Greek civilization, okay? People are losing their intellect, they're losing their grasp on reality, right? He complains about the effects of writing and the effects of theater, which he sees as sort of fantasy taking over reality, right? You can see similar passages in Cicero, Cicero complaining about the loss of civic virtue, the loss of public order, the loss of respect for authority, right? This shows up again and again through all different sorts of accounts where people are writing about their own time in the context of the past, right? Everything is going downhill. You see it sometimes in medieval writers, you see it brought to a new kind of philosophical level in Machiavelli, who was extremely concerned about corruption uh, and social decay, and and Machiavelli actually was a, a republican, you know, We think of him now as the author of The Prince, this sort of, you know, hardball, absolute monarchist handbook. Uh, But really, he believed in republics, but he believed that republics were constantly in danger of decline from corruption. The modern historical discipline, sort of university academic history, is, of course, deeply influenced by Gibbon, and decline and fall of the Roman Empire, where Gibbon was trying to account for uh, the decline of Roman civilization due to Christianity, was one of his main causes, and was trying to bring that sort of lesson into his own world in the 18th century. And recent scholars, you know, beginning particularly with Oswald Spengler and his decline of the West, You know have had a huge influence you know Spengler is not widely seen today by academic historians as as a great historian but he but nonetheless he has had a certain staying power and he's had influence on all kinds of later popular pseudo-intellectual writers like like Pat Buchanan you know the fall of the west and uh and Douglas Murray who I discussed before Strange Death of Europe. Uh, All of them are sort of Spenglerist to one degree or another. And a lot of these authors, they keep going back to similar themes, right? And this can make it very easy, of course, as many people do, to simply dismiss them and dismiss these concerns and say, oh, look, all the way back through history, people have always been complaining about societies going down the tubes, and the young uh, are, are lazy and selfish, However, this isn't quite true either. Most scholars are not declensionist, and it is not the case that this sort of complaint always comes up in, in every era and always comes up in the same way. Sometimes people will sort of dismiss this point of view by telling a certain story, which is the notion that an ancient tablet was found inscribed with this text. Quote, Our earth is degenerate in these later days. There are signs that the world is speedily coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book. And the end of the world is evidently approaching. And this reportedly came from an Assyrian clay tablet from 2800 BC. So this basic claim in the form form that I just read appears, for example, in Isaac Asimov's Book of Facts. Uh, however, it's false. There is no such tablet with any such inscription. And this false urban legend has been passed around in various different forms with slightly different wording since at least 1908, right? For more than 100 years, it's been, it's been kind of tossed around back and forth with no actual source in archaeology and i think that this urban legend has sort of surfaced and been passed around for so many years because it's it it's easy it's an easy way to kind of deflect questions about civilizational decline okay now when a civilization is on the rise and it's growing in strength its scholars and its intellectuals don't necessarily have a lot of reason to do a lot of introspection right i mean herodotus is one of the great exceptions in that he wanted to understand the Persian-Greek conflict, even though the Greeks had won, right? That's, that's very unusual. You know, usually chronicles will do the job when you feel like you're winning and you're, you're, you're running roughshod over your enemies. But when your civilization is facing new obstacles... When prosperity is declining, when you are losing territory, when you are being overtaken by rivals, that's when people start to question, is something going wrong? Are we failing to measure up in some way, right? And declensionist theories of history tend to want to grapple with this question, and they often point to individual virtue, right? This is what Plato was concerned about it's what Cicero was concerned about it's what Machiavelli was concerned about it's this philosophical attitude or mentality that society depends, the success of a society depends on the strength of character and good habits of its individual members, right and virtue is the term that modern philosophy philosophers used to kind of encapsulate this notion, right And Machiavelli is really the ultimate proponent of this view of affairs, right? And he refers back to the the classics, to, to the stories of Brutus and of the oath of the Horatii and all of these ancient stories of men sacrificing themselves or their families for the good of the commonwealth, right? And we can agree or disagree with this viewpoint, but it is a very common notion to come back to right that if your society is in trouble it means something about the moral character the moral fiber of the people who make it up declensionist historians obviously they tend to be pessimistic and sort of fatalistic right and they often put forward very elaborate theories and narratives of history that that involve the the cyclical rise and fall of civilizations Right? And, and Spengler is maybe the, the great example of this uh, way of narrating history. Right, Societies rise, they have a period of vitality, then once they have reached a certain level of success and prosperity, then virtue diminishes, the people become selfish, uh, lazy, uh, they lose their attachment to the cause of the commonwealth or the civilization that they belong to, and decline sets in. Right. So it's, it's, it's sort of up and down, uh, rise and fall picture of history. This notion of history has been challenged really since the rise of Christianity. It's been challenged by an alternative way of viewing history, which is providential. So if you look at the various books of the Bible and try to shape them into an overall story, what you tend to see is people under threat, people being challenged, but being sustained and at some point redeemed by God, right? And Jews and Christians, in their different ways, have tended to imagine themselves in a similar story. Right, they they sort of place themselves into the Bible. You know, countless groups of people, not just the Jews themselves, but uh, you know, Florence, uh, the Netherlands, England, the American colonies, all of these different groups in Western civilization through the centuries have imagined themselves as sort of the new Israel, right, and as suffering. Being oppressed in some way, whether it's by the Spanish or by the British or Catholic Church, and have pictured themselves as sort of the new Israel who will be led by a new Moses, right? A new prophet and lawgiver who will lead them to a promised land, right? And hence they will survive their trials and tribulations and eventually will engage in a final battle. Between good and evil, that will lead to uh, Judgment Day. Okay, so this is this is basically providential history, and when you look back, you know, people today can look back at the way, say, English colonists talked about themselves. You know, we, uh, you know, Boston will be a shining city on a hill, and it can sound sort of delusional, and particularly when. They start to collect signs and wonders, you know, comets or strange animals, and argue that these are somehow signs of a coming apocalypse, right? This is what, this is what people with the providential view of history have thought over and over again. They can sound nuts, but in a sense, it's, it's not that crazy. When you're talking about people before, say, 1700 or so, they had very limited access to information about recorded history right uh, even the classics only a certain limited number of people could read in greek or latin so the main source of information they had about the past was the bible right the bible was was their the bulk of the history that they knew and so when they saw new events happening, you know, new powers arising in the world, new diseases, new kinds of warfare, uh, people migrating, people rebelling. They wanted to make sense of these events, and in order to make sense of them, they tried to compare them and liken them to events in the recorded past, which for them primarily meant the Bible, right? So they fit the events that they were experiencing into a sort of interpretation of the events of the Bible, right? God's people are supposed to suffer. They're supposed to go through tribulations. They're supposed to be challenged in a final battle of good and evil and and then finally redeemed. And there will be a final age of peace, right? A millennium of, of some kind, right? A millennium of, of peace and and harmony. So in a sense, providential history is more optimistic, you might say, than, than declensionist history, right? Instead of just this endless cycle of rise and fall and rise and fall again, you can instead choose to believe that the group that you belong to and the events and the, the, the suffering, the losses that you endure are leading to a good final outcome, right? Which, which will conclude the story of history, okay? So this sort of providential history, it was very big in the 1600s, okay? Puritan migrants, the English Civil War, and I'll talk about this more probably when I talk about the general crisis of the 17th century, but this was very popular in the 1600s and continued to be afterwards as well. Many people continue to think of, of history in this providential terms through the 17 and 1800s, and some fundamentalists still do you know it's, it's it's not gone although it's not as prevalent as it used to be and it's been challenged by other views of history now as time went on this sort of providential history could also be secularized you could in a way take the apocalypticism out of it or at least take this sort of divine intervention direct divine intervention out of it, right? Miracles are very important in providential history, okay? You know, why Why is there this weird storm hitting us? You know, is it because the Messiah is coming or, or Armageddon is coming? If you take the sort of miraculous out of it, and if you accept a more kind of regular, law-governed, naturalistic view of the world, you can create a slightly different understanding of history where the force driving events isn't necessarily divine intervention it's human action and human struggle is going to bring about this sort of final end of history you might say this final age of of peace right and this is the root of of what historians call whig history right now whig history is so prevalent and so widely accepted in the English-speaking world that it's hard to step back and recognize that this is a particular philosophy of history. But Whig history, and this is, you know, W-H-I-G, it takes its name from the hardline Protestant Whig party in the English parliament in the 1600s, which wanted to exclude any Catholics from succession to the English throne. This Whig history basically holds that all of history is driven by the struggle of people to become more free, right? It's this ongoing quest for liberty, right? And this ongoing quest for liberty is embodied in the the Protestant Reformation, right? It's embodied in all kinds of political rebellions and political disputes, and particularly it's embodied in english history right in the creation of english common law the english parliament limited monarchy the church of england all of these basic english institutions were created in order to better and better fulfill and protect liberty and ultimately it's this sort of continuing english quest for liberty that will create the final form of human life right? Now, the British, of course, took up this philosophy in a new way in the 19th century, and you know, this was more or less the underpinning of the British Empire, right? We are the civilizers because we are bringing British enlightenment and freedom. Americans, ironically, also took up Whig history in their way uh, as well, and you can see uh, sort of the first great Work of Whig history was Catherine Macaulay's History of England, which I believe was published in 1762. I think, but don't quote me. I'm not positive of of the date. And it first put forward this sort of programmatic view of history that that English institutions, you know, the the Magna Carta, the Church of England, the the English Civil War, the Commonwealth, all of these things, you know, the Protestant succession all of them were building up towards a more and more truly free society, right? Ironically, the Americans take up this same sort of mentality to argue for independence from Britain, right? And, and the idea that an American republic would be the actual fulfillment of liberty in a way that sort of corrupt and monarchical Britain could never attain, and it was Mercy Otis Warren who wrote the first written history of the American Revolution and in many ways her, her history of the American Revolution was modeled on Macaulay's history of England <laughs> right? so there's a great irony to it and then not long after in the 1790s you get Condorcet who was a French revolutionary who wrote an entire history of human civilization and cast all of it as this continuing quest for liberty which culminated not in British institutions nor in the United States but in the French Revolution and ironically shortly after he was imprisoned and executed (laughs) during during the reign of terror so so you might say his own history kind of got out ahead of him and he ended up a casualty of the revolution but this sort of mentality that all that we can look across the grand sweep of history and see it all as this continuous movement and striving towards freedom in a way underwrites all subsequent historiography maybe you know with 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 the exception of just a few new kind of alternative philosophical schools that have come up that have come up sort of around the fringes of modern intellectual life for one thing i've referred a few times before to the sort of modern american liberal view of history which i would say is another kind of outgrowth of whig history right and this holds that that the driving force of history or the main story of history is not simply people striving against oppression or tyranny but it's of particular oppressed groups struggling against their oppressors, right? And you can say, well, you know, women are oppressed by men, the rest of the world is oppressed by Europe, religious minorities are oppressed by Christians, and so on, you know, and, and sort of divide humankind into these kind of categories of oppressor and oppressed. And I think that, you know, I've already sort of hinted at why This is a terribly simplistic view of history, you know, and to put a finer point on it, you can, I I put forward scenarios to my students sometimes, like if there's a male head of household and he tells his wife to beat the servants and she really doesn't want to do it, but she exceeds and goes and beats the servants, is she an oppressor or an oppressed? You know, and... And for one thing, you could say, okay, well, there are shades, or maybe you can be both at once, or they are in-between categories, but I would say that it's sort of a, an absurd question to begin with, because there's no basis for assuming that in the workings of power and in, you know, the struggle of one person against another, that you can necessarily delineate that there's an oppressor and oppressed, you know? human struggle is, is multifarious. And this is, again, another mythology, right? But still, I would say it's it it's a sort of variation of Whig history, right? And it's a variation that in itself can also take on different forms and variations. But there's still a sort of inbuilt idea that there is one single quest towards freedom or liberty that defines all of history, right? And that and that history must necessarily move in that direction, right? And there are sort of two built-in assumptions to it. One, that history is always going to move in that direction, but also at the same time that people are obligated to work in that direction. It's going to happen on its own, and yet you also are obligated to contribute to it or participate in it, right? And this these are the sort of two kind of awkwardly paired underlying ideas that it shares with Whig history, right? History is always moving in this direction, but you are also obligated to participate and move it in that direction, right? Okay. Now, there have been those who who have challenged the sort of most simplistic, most naive forms of Whig history and have significantly have challenged the idea that that there is sort of one continual thread in history that is moving towards one ideal, or at least have complicated that idea, and, you know, and probably the most important early challenger of of the Whig view of the world was Hegel, right, so an early 19th century German philosopher, and he argued for a historical dialectic, okay, now this is a very complicated, very German idea, and and I, I'm not going to be able to parse it out well in just a few minutes, but just roughly, Hegel believed that history was like a dialogue where an idea could be put forward that would define a certain time, a zeitgeist, right? The spirit, the, the, the mindset of a certain time. But that idea, that zeitgeist, like, uh, say, the organic view of society of the middle ages or the Whig idea of freedom and liberty it always has weaknesses and limitations and it is always then challenged in some way by its opposite right? and you end up with a struggle between competing ideas which eventually erupts into conflict and finally the two ideas must then be synthesized right? reconciled together into a new idea a new philosophy, a new zeitgeist Okay, so Hegel, for one thing, he was responding to the upheaval and violence of the French Revolution. And he was addressing these sort of liberal and Whig philosophers who kind of couldn't account for the terrible cataclysm of the revolution. And Hegel was trying to say, look, this is a confrontation of different ideas, which now have to be somehow reconciled, right? But he believed that this this dialectic would continue. There would continue to be new ideas, challenging ideas, conflict, reconciliation, and that this would go on and on. And he believed that the sort of ideals of freedom and equality that had been propounded by the French Revolution were not the final end of history, right? The way Condorcet might have thought. He believed that there was a problem with this way of viewing the world that it didn't take it didn't have enough respect for the collective right and for a sense of belonging tradition and strong collectivities right and he pointed back to ancient athens and and the philosophies of plato and aristotle as kind of expressions of group cohesion and organic unity that had existed in the polis okay so Hegel doesn't see his own time as sort of the concluding age of history. He believes that there's going to be further upheaval, right, and that at some point there'll have to be a new synthesis, a new reconciliation between individual freedom and the collective. Okay, so Hegel, you know, has a deep, long-lasting influence, running down two current scholars like prominently Charles Taylor, you might have heard of, and Michael Waltzer, many others. Now Hegel in a curious sort of roundabout way, ends up influencing another philosopher who founds another dramatically distinct school of thought, which in a way is built on Hegel at the same time that it reverses Hegel. Okay, that, and that is Marx. Okay, so Marx grows up in the german philosophical world at a time when hegel is like the godfather of it all right and he, he's surrounded by these young hegelians you might have heard of and marx finds the dialectic view of history persuasive you know and he also is coming in the shadow of the french revolution he's he's trying to understand why the french revolution happened why it was so dramatic and cataclysmic and also why it didn't answer the sort of questions he wanted it to, why it didn't address wealth and poverty and the enormous material inequality that he saw around him, right? Okay, so material economics. Marx took Hegel's philosophy and flipped it upside down, and this is almost exactly the wording that he uses in his early essay called The German Ideology, which is a really brilliant... Those early Marx essays are just incredibly brilliant and powerful, whether or not you agree with his arguments. Marx says that Hegel and the young Hegelians had the picture upside down. In Hegel's view, ideas drive history, right? And societies organize themselves. They organize their governments, their art, their economies, and so on around the driving ideas of the time, the zeitgeist. Marx believed that this was backwards. It was economics and economic modes of production that shaped and defined societies. And the ideas simply grew out of the economics, right? So he says in the German ideology, Hegel has the picture inverted as in a camera obscura, referring to a sort of closed chamber where light comes in through a lens and creates an inverted image in the chamber. Of course in in Communist Manifesto he says all of history is the history of class conflict right social economic classes defined by their roles in the economic mode of production and he and he argues the the ideas the ruling ideas of a time are always the ideas of its ruling class right so again a kind of distant response to Hegel right what these ideas that you see as the spirit of the time are just the ideas put forward by the people with the material economic power. So in Marx's view, there's been a succession of economic systems, right? And he, in his basic outline, he begins with feudalism. Uh, Feudalism was overthrown by capitalism, right? And he sees the French Revolution as the sort of capitalist bourgeoisie rising up and overthrowing the old feudal elite, the aristocratic elite, and and in his view, there will be a further revolution, right, and he hoped that, that 1848 was that revolution, but 1848 didn't end up working out so well, but in his view, there would be a further revolution in which socialism would overthrow capitalism, right, So in feudalism, you have sort of uh, people with social power controlling the land and extracting labor uh, from the lower class, from the commoners. Uh, In capitalism, you have wage labor, right? The owners of the means of production, like factories and rails, pay wages to workers who, who own nothing, right? And are forced to sell their labor for money. And in socialism, in his view, property ownership would be entirely abolished, right? And everything would be held in common, right? There'd be no more private property. And these philosophies that arose, you know, like, say, Smith's philosophy of trade, were were merely epiphenomena. They were just expressions of the actual material modes of, of production and relations, So ironically, Marx believed that that ideas had no value in themselves, even though from the point of view of today, we would see Marx as one of the most influential thinkers of all time, you know, probably one of the most influential people of all time because of his ideas and, and his writings. Now, there are all kinds of problems and weaknesses in the Marxian view of history, you know or dialectical materialism right as as philosophers call it there are all kinds of problems and weaknesses with this view that different scholars sympathetic to Marx have responded to in all kinds of different ways and in doing so they have sort of adjusted and expanded and reworked Marxism into various kinds of neo-Marxism and Marxianism. Uh, you know now there, you know, you can hardly get together three Marxists without a shouting match, really, because they respond to problems as they come up in all kinds of different ways. And the dialectical materialist view of history depends on certain abstract concepts that no one seems to have a clear definition for, right? So now Marxists today we will talk about capitalism, right? Although Marx didn't use that word. He talked about capital and the capitalist mode of production. Marxists, since that time, will talk about capitalism. And yet, there's incredible confusion about what that is. I was in a seminar myself where a professor asked the class, we were discussing American slavery, and she asked, is slavery capitalist? And we had a whole conversation about it. And I just sort of sat there, you know, silent saying, this is bizarre, w- w- doesn't this all just depend on how you choose to define capitalism or capitalist? If the meaning of capitalist isn't clear enough that we can decide whether slavery belongs in that category or not, then it seems to be a useless term. You know, it's it's not something that anyone in the 19th century or, or even much of the 20th century used or applied to themselves it's a retroactively applied concept that is extremely ambiguous and that's capitalism you know and then you want to talk about socialism you know it's it's a whole it's a whole other problem still marxism it has it, it, incredible power it is often a very powerful explanatory device for accounting for people's views and people's actions so it has a, a staying power and It has a popular appeal, and part of its popular appeal is how it draws on Hegel's dialectic and also on providential history, right? So you can see a similarity where, you know, Christian providential history believes that there will be an apocalypse, right? A a sort of great clash of good and evil, revealing of hidden truths and reality, which will then give way to a final age of peace. You know, Marx's philosophy that there is inevitably going to be a revolution, right? And there will be a final battle, a final clash between the forces of capital and the workers. And the workers inevitably will win and will create a proletarian, free, equal society. Uh, You know, it's, it's patterned pretty closely on that earlier providential history and it has a lot of the same appeal people want to believe that whatever they're suffering through inevitably they will win out in the end right and there will be a sort of happy ending and this is this is the story that you see in Marx's own writings and a story that people for many ages many generations have wanted to be part of okay beginning in the late 19th century so just a little bit after Marx, Marx's writings in the 1880s, 1890s new forms of history were experimented with and became prevalent among intellectuals particularly in continental Europe and I won't get deeply into the details of these but there was the, the Annale school in France exemplified by Lucien Febvre and uh, Fernand Braudel and others that Argued for looking aside from just politics and political history, you know, the history of wars and political struggle, to the long durée, okay, of social history, right? Looking at how everyday people actually lived their lives and the sort of gradual changes that happen through time that actually can be more deeply impactful on ordinary people's lives than politics, right? Things like electrification. Right, so the the Annal historians are are interested in what they called mentalité, right? The, the the thinking, the mentality of a time, sort of like the Zeitgeist, but which they saw as longer lasting and more pervasive and enduring than uh, than Hegel's than Hegel sees in his dialectic. Okay, again, I won't I won't get deeply into the details. Also, in in Germany, you have a new school arise around Weber, which is somewhat similar in some ways to the Anal school, but which takes in a sense, an even bigger, broader view. okay. And Weber argues for sort of three basic stages in the history of human life. And, and societies belong to one of three categories: uh, tribal, patrimonial, and modern. right? So the tribal society, people who know each other in person. They belong to the group. Patrimonial is bigger, more organized. People have certain roles to play that are inherited, right? So patrimony, inheritance, the legacy from father to child, right? So you're defined by, by your family identity, by your name, okay? Ancient and medieval societies, broadly speaking, can be called patrimonial. And then modern, right? And Weber is sort of the founder of developmental history and modernization theory, right? And and to him, the modern world is distinctly different because you now have a sort of undifferentiated accounting of people, each of whom is directly accountable to the state, right? So the modern world is bureaucratic and it manages people as individuals, right? Your Your identity, your family identity, your inheritance doesn't matter. You you know, it's sort of the, you know, cogs in a machine picture of of the modern world. So so these schools are very influential academically. You know, there's no question that, you know, if if, if you if you do take a historiography class today, you're pretty certain to read Mark Bloch's The Historian's Craft, which is an a statement of the Anal school's view of history. Right, combing through the sources to reconstruct the texture of people's lives and experience. Right, You could say that in a sense there's a kind of populism to it and there's a sort of belief in the kind of special power and special responsibility of the historian to ordinary people. Right, And Weber is very influential although he's been challenged. When people write about religion, politics, mass media, anything like that, it's almost always underwritten in some way by by Weber, but they don't have as much popular penetration. You know, ironically, these sort of social historians in the late 1800s, early 1900s don't catch on and shape the way regular people see themselves in history, the way Whig or Marxist historiography does. Now, the last sort of School of thought that I'll I'll talk about, and there are there's been a great proliferation of different methods and approaches to history in the past fifty years. But the last one that I'll talk about is post structural and post modern history. Now now so so I'm putting together two two terms there that don't really mean the same thing. They're often associated or used almost interchangeably, but they're not the same. But they have a lot of commonality and a lot of similarity, right? So post-structuralism and postmodernism both are originally French philosophies that deal not only with history, but with art and literature and science and uh, you know, are our, our sort of comprehensive approaches to analyzing the world and experience. They come originally out of France, beginning in the 1960s and they, they then go abroad and are taken up particularly in the United States, right? So Americans will have seen the influence of these schools of thought. Post-structuralism is originally a response to structuralism. I mean, you can trace it in a way to Derrida's response to Claude Lévi strauss who was a structural anthropologist, right? Structuralism holds that you can look at different societies and see certain basic underlying patterns that structure people's relationships and people's ideas, right? Things like family relations, kinship, you know, and, and Claude levi strauss did this very interesting study where he looked at how people in different societies relate to their uncles, right? Around the world, if people customarily have very formal and taboo-bound relationships with their uncles, they're going to have very informal and friendly relationships with their fathers, and vice versa, if you have a sort of friendly, informal relationship with your uncle, you're probably going to have a very formal, structured relationship with your father, right? And different societies fall on different sides of, of this line. And in America we we don't have very clearly delineated kinship roles in America but loosely speaking we tend to fall on the side of you know your uncle is sort of your friendly guy and your father is the the authority figure that you're supposed to respect you know when we talk about father figures so this is this is the sort of anthropological approach that that Claude Lévi-Strauss took to the structures of human thought and and relations right Derrida and others after him questioned this and actually argued that that these categories, these structured relationships that scholars use to describe the world and to identify patterns in human thought and human behavior are really all arbitrary. Right? They're, they're sort of arbitrary imagined terms like, like lines of longitude on a map. They're just sort of arbitrarily drawn there and they are used to create an illusion of order and control over the world. Okay. Derrida put forward a concept of the infinite play of signifiers. Okay, Basically that any word or symbol that one uses to represent the world like the words that make up a historical book, for instance, have no real connection or inherent correspondence to anything out there in the world, objectively. But they rather are all defined by their relationships to other signifiers, right? So if you if you want the definition of a word, you have to look it up and see how it's defined using other words, right? And those words can only be defined with yet other words. And you have this sort of endless net Of words relating to words, right? And none of this has any necessary connection to some real external thing that they're connected to. Okay, I know this sounds very abstract, but it can kind of make sense if you imagine things like like the way that I just spoke about capitalism, right? So post-structuralists and also postmodernists which I'll get to they tend to look at marxists and say you're using these terms like feudalism and capitalism and capital as if they are referring to some real clear you know tangible phenomenon out there in the world when really they're just arbitrary categories someone drew up in order to create what looks like a coherent story right postmodernists come a little bit later, you know, kind of influenced by poststructuralism. And beginning in the 70s, you get postmodernist philosophers like Lyotard and Baudrillard, who basically say, in the modern world, people created grand narratives of history, right? Whether it was Whig or Marxist or Hegelian or whatever, they create sort of grand unifying stories. But all of these stories are all incompatible with one another. And all of them are just sort of Arbitrarily dividing up what they see and putting them into these arbitrarily drawn boxes, right? In this sense, all of these histories are all myth, right? All these, they're all meta narratives, as postmodernists would say. And in the postmodern world, which they see themselves living in, since, you know, about the the 60s or so. In the postmodern world, we are now all very skeptical of meta narratives, right? We are able to see that they are all myths, right? We can question them and we can use them and play with them and experiment with them while knowing that they're all relative, right? So postmodernists basically are, are relativist. So on the one hand, you could say, okay, well, everything that I've just been saying in this lecture is all more or less postmodern, right? I'm sort of saying, well, all these stories are all just myths of different kinds, right? And that is true so far as it goes. But again, I would personally say that I see two problems with the post-structuralist and postmodernist way of viewing history, right? One is the logical leap of saying, well, if everything is a myth, then everything, in a sense, is interchangeable, right? And, And there's no no need or no way to adjudicate what is a stronger more persuasive narrative than another right and i was again i was in a historiography course at one point several years ago we were discussing various books and then we sort of started discussing well should history have truth should a a history book be true and i was saying well yeah isn't that kind of the point don't Don't you want your narrative to be true? And one of the professors said, oh, I don't look for truth in a history book. I mean, I want to see that the scholar has done their homework with the sources, right? You know, has gone through the archival documents and and constructed their story. And, you know, in in his words, has done their homework with the sources, but I'm not looking for truth. And my question was, well, but then why does it matter whether you do your homework with the sources? You know, why, why, does, why does that make any difference? If, if, if you're not looking for truth, then why not just make things up? Okay? And some postmodern scholars actually do this to one degree or another. You know, Jonathan Spence, who's a great historian of China, wrote, the, wrote a book called Emperor of China, where he, he took letters and other documents about the, I believe it was the Kangxi Emperor of the Qing Dynasty in China, and then he wrote a fictitious memoir in the voice of that emperor imagining how he would describe his life and you know and it's not real that that memoir doesn't exist but it still counts as a history book because he was using that form to interpret the information in the sources that he did have right but i think the underlying question that isn't answered here is well but why not just make it up right in a sense there i think postmodernism can lead to this weird sort of undefined in-between position where you're relativist but you're not right you you're relativist about what is true and how to adjudicate what is true or false but you still claim this sort of scholarly authority based on the use of documentary sources right it's it's this kind of unresolved have your cake and eat it too another problem that i see with the postmodern and poststructural way of dealing with the past is the fact that it it is rooted entirely in interpretation of language, right? The idea that, that language is a system of arbitrarily socially created signs and signifiers that do not necessarily have any purchase on the things they're referring to, right? And this goes, you know, right back to Derrida, and I think that that's a very powerful insight about language and about the sort of limits of knowledge communicated through language. However, there, human knowledge and experience is not all linguistic. You know, there there are physical objects, there is sensory experience, right, and all of that is necessarily involved in in how we. Remember and represent and understand the past and how we fit ourselves into our sense of the past and the present. I think that this presents a real problem for post-structuralism as a way of interpreting the world, but it is still a very important set of insights and arguments for the field of history, right? Because academic history as we know it today is overwhelmingly linguistic right physical objects play a role images play a role direct face-to-face interaction plays a role but it is really still the book and the article the printed book or article that is kind of the marker of legitimacy in the field of academic history i don't think it should be to nearly the degree that it is but it is right and when you see that every historical story and every historical argument is communicated linguistically because because narrative is is linguistic and symbolic then these this deconstructionist uh, critique really is important uh, and it, it cannot simply be brushed aside whether or not you consider yourself a post-structuralist or a post-modernist it is a serious uh, philosophical insight and and criticism of common intellectual assumptions about history and science and art and so forth that needs to be grappled with in a serious way so that is the sort of basic overview about history as myth that I tried to put together as I go forward in the future hopefully I will be able to respond to particular myths and mythic stories that, that come up and discuss them as such. And again, if there are topics that you see, that you hear about in the news, that you hear about in the political realm, that you want to see analyzed critically, please uh, let me know, comment, or email historiansplaining at com. And, again, if you want to hear more, please uh, contribute whatever you can, even if it's just a dollar. Go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Explaining. Thank you.